Our text this morning in Matthew 20 is verses 20 through 25, and we're going to look at the beginning part of this whole matter of what it is to be great in the kingdom. And uh, this morning we're looking at the approach of James and John and their mother and what they ask of the Lord Jesus. And friends, it would be fair to say that we live in an age really that is marked by selfishness and pride, where often humility is seen as a weakness. And if you were to look over history, you would see that where the promotion of self and self-interest and self-expression without restraint are the dominant forces, society is ripped apart. And that is what we are seeing all around us, because society depends on genuine relationships. When the majority of people are committed only to themselves, those relationships crumble. And so there's just a, a brokenness on a mass scale. Broken relationships in homes, amongst friends, amongst colleagues, in communities. When the focus is purely on what I want, what my rights are, what my agenda is, what my feelings are at the cost of others, it never ends well. And this worldly attitude of pride and self-ambition has gripped society, but it's not new. And tragically, it's also infiltrated the church. The focus on self and individualism is prevalent among the Lord's people too, and some even manipulate the Scriptures to support that. And you've got many ministries today forwarding a message that says, well, God just wants for you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and fulfilled, and, you know, God is just there as a, an additional extra in your life to give you your best life now and to make you a better you. And so many believers have been drawn in and they're living just for now to satisfy self now and pleasure now. And really, the world looks on and sees no difference between itself and the church of Christ. And this self-interest can be even dressed up in spiritual terms, but this worldly attitude has swept in. And so commitment and service and sacrifice and counting the cost and enduring suffering and loyalty are in short supply. Exaltation of self and much appetite for this whole matter of humility, which should be a distinguishing mark of the believer, is just not there. Self is prevalent. But you know, when the Lord is truly at work, you find that humility and brokenness before the Lord are characteristic of gospel ministry and the people of God. You know, when you look back to times of great blessing where the Spirit of God has been poured out in a mighty way, you know, times like the Reformation amongst the Puritans, there was that sense of trembling at the Word of God. There was conviction over sin, there was brokenness, there was humility, there was meekness amongst the Lord's people, a desire for one another's good. There was a relying on the Lord which saw them serving the strength and the power of the Spirit of God. But now often the church is taken up with itself, with its abilities and its ingenuity and its techniques, and as one says, has made pride a virtue and humility a weakness. And this is a great challenge in our day. And you know, the scriptures are very clear on this matter. Think of Proverbs 16:5. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Romans 1 speaks of pride as the mark of man's fallenness into a reprobate mind. In 1 Timothy, Paul says that pride comes from the devil and is the mark of false teachers. 
Pride is sin. It's to be hated. It's part of the world. The believer shouldn't be pursuing that. The Bible says that God resists the proud. Isaiah 23 says that the Lord brings the proud into contempt. In the Psalms, you found that the, the proud will face judgment. They'll be brought low. Malachi says they'll be punished. Luke 1 says they'll be scattered. Whereas in contrast, the Bible says that humility is a virtue. Micah 6, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? We read in Psalm 138, though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Psalm 10, verse 17, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. There's a wonderful verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 15, 33, before honor is humility. This is the pathway to nearness with the Lord. Colossians 3.12 says that believers are to put on humility. And the lesson of honor through humility is one that we need to learn if we're following the Lord Jesus, just like the disciples in our text. And you know, it is remarkable that even though they have been with Jesus, even though they had been following him, they were still full of self at times. Self-glory, self-promotion, seeking status and prominence. As one explains, from pride, the saints of God received their greatest injuries after conversion. So there's great danger. And really what the Lord does is he, he emphasizes again that suffering must come before glory. And so when you look at the passage, the disciples, you know, they've been called, they've forsaken all to follow Jesus, and they loved him. They really did love the Savior. They've been enabled to trust him and follow him, but also they knew that there were great promises that attended Messiah in his kingdom. The problem was that at that time, those promises have been sort of explained to be purely earthly gain and prosperity and status. And you know, there was part of that that they wanted. You know, they've been through this suffering, they liked the idea of that. And also the Lord had said that there would be future blessing for them. Not necessarily in the way that they had in mind. But if you look back at Matthew 19 and verses 28 to 29, Jesus says to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So, you know, you've got this prospect, eternal life, inheritance of the kingdom, receiving a hundredfold for their sacrifice. You know, these were things that they thought about, but they were wrongly interpreting them only in a materialistic way. And they wanted the glory, they wanted the honor, but they didn't want to hear the Savior's teaching on the necessity of suffering. Do you know, if you look at verses 17 to 19 of Matthew 20, where we were the last time we were in Matthew, the Lord Jesus has just finished giving his most detailed prediction of what he is about to do upon the cross. That he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die before rising in triumph. He is about to perform the ultimate act of servanthood, and yet here his disciples show that servanthood is the last thing on their mind. You know, Matthew highlights the, the servant heart of the Savior. 
and that this humility should be the mark of his followers because they are to be like him. And so the Savior is emphasizing that the cross has got to come before the crown. We've said that many times. He is trying to impress upon them this right perspective that suffering comes before glory. And throughout Matthew's gospel, the Lord Jesus had explained that to be his disciple was costly. You know, it meant to, to follow him, meant to lose your life in order to save it, to take up your cross, to die to self. Following him meant to come as a little child, humble and dependent. You know, when the rich young ruler came to him and wanted to get into the kingdom, Jesus said that he had to abandon everything, forsake his riches and follow. And that cost was too great. He walked away. But there could be no doubt concerning what it required to come to the kingdom, humility, self-denial, abandonment to Jesus Christ. And you know, the disciples, they had been through that. They, they had followed in that way, but they still had this battle. And they still asked, well, well, what's in it for us? What do we get for the sacrifices that we've made? And though the service to the Savior should have been motivated by love, not by what they could gain, they at times stumbled into trouble. It's a hard lesson. And you know, we know that the disciples continued to struggle with it. They did. And it shows, friends, that this side of glory, even if we love Jesus, even if we follow the Savior, we're going to have to battle self. Selfishness is incurable in this life, but it can be restrained and brought under control by the grace of God. And the humble heart doesn't seek its own glory, its own honor, its own popularity, but only to exalt Christ. And that message is clear. It has not changed. The gospel is still a call to lay aside all to follow Jesus Christ. Humility is still the path to glory, to be those who out of love for Jesus will throw their selfishness away to serve him, to abandon all for him, to turn away from the world and to do what Christ wants, no matter the cost. It's not a popular message, but it's the truth of God. And Jesus must have the preeminence. And so we see in this issue, you know, if we're, we're approaching the Christian life only for what we can get, only for how to advance ourselves or to get more status, then quite simply we need to repent. Those attitudes are not the outworking of the gospel in our lives. But this self-seeking, friends, it is not a new problem. Do you know, all the way back, the early church father, Augustine, he wrote this uh, amazing work called The City of God. And in it, he writes this. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter glories in the Lord. And so you've got this great division. Self or Christ. And the problem still faces us. One preacher more recently put it like this. There is a new cross in evangelicalism. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned. The new cross only assures. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages confidence in the flesh. The old cross brought tears and blood. The new cross brings laughter. 
The flesh, smiling and confident, preaches and sings about the cross, but upon that cross it will not die. And the reproach of that cross it refuses to bear. And really we see these attitudes in this situation here. And so let's ask the question, what does greatness in the kingdom not look like? Okay, what does it not look like? The world has got its ways to get greatness. They are totally opposed to the ways of God's kingdom. And sadly, we see some of these worldly ways in our passage this morning. And the first way not to be great in the kingdom is to make a play for power. To make a play for power. Look at verses 20 to 21. You know, the world says that to get what you want, you need to get yourself amongst the people with influence. So much depends upon who you know. You think of the great corridors of power, all the scheming behind, you know, the scenes, the manipulating to maneuver for position. And you know what we find here is seemingly totally indifferent to what the Lord Jesus has just said concerning his death upon the cross. The mother of James and John begins their play for power. You know, in the parallel passage in Mark 10, only James and John are mentioned, so we need to see that it's the three of them coming together to make this request, and James and John are with their mother, the mother speaks first. And verse 21, they come, Jesus says to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand, the other on your left in your kingdom. It's a staggering request. It is a move full of pride, seeking glory for themselves. They want to have the preeminence next to the king. They want others to look to them that they're so close to Christ, that they're in the place of honor, that they're so worthy, they must be so holy. They want that affirmation. Now, James and John were known as sons of thunder. They were bold, they were forthright, and here they're demanding. That's interesting that their mother is Salome, mother of the sons of Zebedee, and she is the sister of Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus. So this also has a family dynamic. And so they think that by being earthly cousins, you know, that'll go into their favor as well to, to get the prominence. And so really, they're trying to manipulate the Lord Jesus. James, John, their mother, all approach into pressure to play on the compassion that the save you would have for the sister of his own earthly mother. And it's interesting, verse 20, it says that she came kneeling down. So she came literally to worship, to bow down before him as king. And so she comes, she bows before him, and then over in Mark 10, it says that none of them would tell the Lord Jesus what they wanted at first. Now, Jesus knew, of course he did, he knows all hearts. But they wanted the Lord Jesus to promise to grant their request before, as they saw it, he knew what it was. Now, it was known that kings on occasion would offer to grant one of their subjects whatever they asked to show their power. And so she's almost provoking the Savior to display his royalty and his power. It's, it's so manipulative, seeking glory for her sons and as a consequence for herself. Now, let me just say, there are some good elements in her attitude. Let me just highlight those before we go on. She does believe in the kingdom. She does not doubt that Jesus is king. She has confidence in Jesus for the future and that the kingdom was a reality that would soon be shown. But apart from that, 
there is nothing good about what she asks. It is a request full of pride, full of arrogance. You know, imagine going to the Lord Jesus and saying, of all the people who've ever lived, of all the people who've ever served you, Lord, we believe that we should sit next to you. We deserve that central place in the coming kingdom. Can you imagine going with such a request? As one explains, the flesh lusts against the spirit in all of God's children. And Martin Luther well remarks, the flesh ever seeks to be glorified before it's crucified. And so she comes in this way, they come in this way, they seize the opportunity. They've seen Peter, you know, he stumbled a few times and, you know, they may have shared his views, but they kept their mouths shut so that they look a bit better. They make their play for power. And that's what the world does. It waits for the opportune moment, makes the play for power. And friend, the church still suffers from those who come in and are seeking to push self. Those who want the preeminence, those who want to have the status, those who who love the focus, they want their own way. They want to be esteemed, they want to be lifted up. And they think that this will get them the reward now and in the future that this will be somehow pleasing to the Lord Jesus. But the Lord detests such pride and arrogance amongst his people. He rejects it totally. It's not how you become great in his eyes. It's not the way of blessing and honor in the kingdom. Making place for power. But then the second thing they do, verses 22 to 24, they're consumed by wrong ambition. Verse 22, Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And so he tells her that she's asking for glory and yet they have no idea what they're asking in terms of suffering. Do you know there's a wonderful verse in the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes says this, don't be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. She comes and she asks for something that she doesn't understand. You know, some people ask, who's going to receive the greatest reward in heaven? Well, the Lord knows. But the scriptures give us glimpses and certainly those who have suffered much for the cause of Christ will know great blessings. Those who've lived for Christ, those who've paid the greatest price in terms of self-denial and dedication for his purposes and sacrifice in this hostile, sinful, broken world. Think of 2 Corinthians 4. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So when we are afflicted and suffer for the cause of the gospel, it is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, we know all believers receive the same glorious eternal life. All inherit the perfection of Christ's likeness in eternity. You know, if we are believers, we will rejoice in the immense blessing of glory. There will be nothing lacking. But there is also a weight of glory reserved for those who have suffered most for the cause of Christ. The secret things, they're known to the Lord. And Jesus is saying, you don't know what you ask for. To sit next to me is to seek the intensity of suffering that I will face. Are you able to drink that cup? Now, the cup is a symbol from the Old Testament. And it speaks of drinking something until that cup is dry. In Isaiah, it speaks of the cup of the wrath of God. 
Christ drank all of that on behalf of his people on the cross. In Matthew 26, the Lord Jesus calls it a bitter cup. It is a cup that is filled with wrath and suffering and sorrow, a cup which had to be drunk in order to deliver his people. And the point he is making is that full glory only comes via the cross and the profound suffering that he would endure. Now, you need to be clear, neither of these men are going to drink the fullness of the cup that Jesus was about to drink. But Jesus' cup would spill over upon his followers in smaller measure. So that place of honor exalted with Christ doesn't come with selfish power plays or wrong ambition, but by humility, suffering, abandonment to self, and sacrificial living for him. You know, the arrogance and foolishness of James and John is seen in verse 22. And they say, well, we're able, Lord. You know, we can do this. And that response just shows how far off they were. How far off in their thinking they were at this point. They were so consumed by wrong ambition that they couldn't see how ridiculous they sounded. You know, they thought they could do it. They had this wrong place confidence. You know, in our walk with the Lord, our spiritual service, if we are in a place where we think that we can do things in our own strength, we've missed it. We can't do anything without him. You know, you think of Peter. He boasted. He boasted to the Lord, I'll never leave you, Lord. I'll never forsake you. But when the Lord Jesus was taken prisoner, what happened to Peter? What happened to James and John? Well, they all ran like the others. They couldn't endure that suffering in their own strength. They were so consumed in themselves that they failed to see their need to humble themselves in dependence upon the Lord. You see, in the kingdom of God, you don't know any blessing or honor by boasting in self, trusting in self, or depending on self. And you see the patience and the graciousness of the Savior. Verse 23, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. He deals with them so gently, even though they've acted so poorly. You know, it's a challenge to us. You know, when we have to deal with those who at times lose their way in this, as one explains, true faith may lie at the bottom of their hearts, even though there seems to be much rubbish at the top. And Jesus says that they'll taste of the suffering, that they'll be faithful unto death, and the time will come when they did die because of their love for Christ, their faithfulness to the gospel. James would die as a martyr, Acts 12. John would be a living martyr, exiled on the island of Patmos to live alone for the rest of his days. They would know the fellowship of his sufferings. And you say, well, what was the difference between this occasion and then? Who or what made the difference? Well, it was the empowering and enabling of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit was vital in their transformation to give them the strength to face paying the ultimate price for their saving. They needed his work in their lives. And those here acting so proudly will become pillars in the church of Christ. You know, sometimes believers might stumble into really foolish ways. They might crash into real darkness. But by God's grace, they can be transformed into those mighty for the gospel. And regarding the detail of what that would mean in glory, Jesus says, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And so the Lord Jesus says, look, 
During my earthly mission, there is this submission there. The Father has granted such a place of blessing to those for whom it has been prepared, appointed, the Lord knows. But it won't be those who have sought themselves, consumed with wrong ambition, those who have thought they deserve to be greatest. It will be those marked by humble love for Christ. You know, when you consider this request, it was thoughtless, it was inconsiderate, but you know, We've got to ask ourselves, have we not asked for things from the Lord in a selfish manner without really counting the cost or what our supplications actually involve? We ask much, and yet are we really prepared to take up the cross and follow Jesus? Are we willing to give up the world for his sake? Are we ready to put off the old man and to put on the new to withstand a world that is against Christ? Are we prepared to be sanctified by any process that God in his wisdom might purpose for us? Are we ready to be purified by affliction and weaned from the world and draw nearer to Christ by losses and sicknesses and sorrow? No, those are hard questions and maybe there are times when we, we don't know what we ask. But they bring this request, Jesus deals with them. But then verse 24 the other ten hear about it, and they're furious. They are so displeased with James and John. They're angry. Now, it's not a righteous anger. They're angry because they got him first. They wanted the same thing, and no doubt this reaction would have caused the Lord so much sorrow of heart to see his disciples acting like this, and yet he reacts so gently, so graciously, and we see again that he really is the tender shepherd who loves his sheep and brings them on. And then as we draw to a conclusion, we've seen that the world seeks greatness by making place for power, consumed with wrong ambition. But then Jesus highlights a couple of further things. Destructive dictators. Look at verse 25. Jesus called them to himself. He calls the disciples to teach them further. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. You know, another way not to know greatness in the kingdom of God is to lord it over the people. You know, the world sees the emergence of dictators who dominate, who control, who oppress who lorded over people. They come and go, kings and Caesars and emperors and presidents. There are many even today. They rule by their destructive dictatorship, trampling on whoever gets in their way to get their greatest. You know, they, they want their greatness. You know, when I was over in Belarus, you know, the current president has roads closed down for him just so that he can go where he wants to go to the inconvenience of everybody else. Builds for himself great palaces. You know, you see in reality this destructive dictatorship. And that style of leadership, you know, it's not just confined to politics and governments. It finds itself in lots of other places too. Find it in workplaces, you know, the tyrant. You can find it in churches when there are those who want to dominate others and tell them what to think and how to act and what to do and to control. And sadly, sometimes that can be the leader's. I'm the pastor, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. But this must not be, friends. 1 Peter 5, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. That's the way of the kingdom, not dictatorships. 
and also outside of the leadership as well, those who, who tried to dominate the church from the pew, as it were, all their energies put into manipulating and getting what they want, getting the preeminence. That is not the way in the kingdom. You get these destructive dictators. The Lord says it should not be so. And then verse 25, control by character. Those who are great exercise authority over them. The chief ones, those who have authority, those who vaunt their power, this can be by power and force of personality, persuasiveness and words and swaying and moving people by sheer force of persona. It can be like that in the church too. The emergence of the celebrity. Those not marked by godliness and faithfulness, but they've got these great characters. You think of the false teachers and, and often you think, well, how do people listen to these preachers and get drawn in? You know, how do they get sucked into what's going on? Sometimes they're frightened to walk away. Such is the control. Some are so enamored by personality that they're lured in and emotions are manipulated and, you know, it's all the world, the enemy, and it's infiltrated the church. But the Lord Jesus is so clear. Power plays, wrong ambition, destructive dictatorships, control by character, that does not in any way equate to greatness in the kingdom. All those things have got nothing to do with the kingdom of God. They're of the world, they're of sin. And followers of Christ, citizens of the kingdom, they should be humble, self-denying, abandoned to Christ, not seeking status and glory, but to be close to him, to honor him, and in the church, the greatest is to be the one with the biggest servant heart. That's what the Lord Jesus will go on to teach. He says, these things, it shall not be so among you. See the danger, see the warning before honor is humility. The cross before the crown, lowliness before exaltation. Jesus makes it clear. Seeking the Lord to know him, to humbly walk with him, to submit to him, and he lifts us up. That is his way. In the eyes of the world, the greatest has the most wealth, the most status, the most power, the most attractiveness. That is not greatness in the eyes of heaven. And as the people of God, we are to be like the one that we claim to follow. Not about self, but others. Not in being served, but serving. Not in just taking all the time, but giving. And you know, heaven delights in the beauty of the humble believer serving him in obscurity than all the greatest achievements of the people of this world. You know, that forgotten missionary somewhere far off who, you know, hardly anybody ever prays for, heaven sees it and rejoices. And the Lord Jesus is the ultimate example. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. That's the way of the kingdom. And friends, this morning, I need to search my heart we need to search our hearts. And if we've stumbled into seeking self, then we need to repent of that and cry out for forgiveness and grace and know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. 
we could only live like this and away from these things that we've highlighted this morning in his strength. Can't do this on our own. We need him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've only ever lived for yourself. And maybe as you see these things, you realize that that is the path to ruin. Well, friend, the Lord Jesus Christ is able to save even you. And you need to turn from your sin and rebellion and call upon his name and trust him, his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, and know that through him you can be washed, you can be cleansed, you can be forgiven, you can be pardoned, you can be at peace with God, given a new nature, a new power to pursue God and know God and walk with him and to have everlasting life and hope. Oh, friends, we need to be so much beware seeking false greatness. We need to shun those ways of the world and know that the path to true greatness is humility and brokenness, selflessness, abandonment to Jesus. I pray that we would be so taken up with the Savior that we would willingly serve without asking, well, what's in it for me? But give all for the one who gave all for us. That we may suffer gladly for his sake and for his glory. That's the way of the kingdom. Where are you this morning? Where's your heart? Are you serving self? Or are you serving Christ? May you heed this warning from James and John and their mother. And may you know that the way of true greatness is to humble ourselves before the Lord and to seek only Christ, that he might have the preeminence. Amen.